Tyler Don Rosenquist, and welcome to Character in Context, where I usually teach the historical and ancient sociological context of scripture with an eye to developing the character of the Messiah. But not right now. Right now I'm doing a series about how not to waste your time with bad study practices, bad resources, and just the general confusion that I faced when I started studying the Bible and was trying to figure out what to do and whose books I should read. Bottom line, I read a lot of nonsense and I spent a ton of money on it. I'm going to give you some basics on how to avoid a lot of the pitfalls, save money, maximize your time and effort, and get the most out of what you're doing. And my ever-increasing master book list can be found on my website, theancientbridge.com, and I will add to it as needed. So we're actually coming to the end of this series because next week we will talk about the Psalms and how they need to be treated and understood. And the week after that, we will tackle the minefield of inerrancy. You know, that's a word that most people have an idea about and assume that everyone else has the same definition when they absolutely don't. I want to help you have a conversation about it real conversations where, you know, everyone understands what everyone else is actually saying when they claim that the Bible is inerrant. Then we're going to do, I think we're going to do a month of Psalms and a month of Matthew and we'll switch back and forth until we run out of one or the other. And that'll probably take me the rest of my life. But as the Psalms are a reflection of our relationship with the divine and also one another, and the Gospel of Matthew is the story of Yeshua, or you may call him Jesus as the greater Moses. I think they'll mesh well together. So let's start out with the basics this week. A sermon like the Sermon on the Mount is generally given in public and has to do with teaching right behavior or expounding upon scripture in such a way that it directs the lives and understanding of the audience. A sermon at its heart is guidance. A sermon can be angry, concerned, compassionate, a warning, or encouraging. The Bible is full of sermons, and not only from Jesus, Paul, and James, but also Moses and the prophets. In fact, Deuteronomy is the absolute, undisputed, longest sermon in the entire Bible. Nothing else even comes close. So, in that, Moses you know, before his death, delivers his swan song, for lack of a better term. It's his last chance to tell Israel what they will need to know in his absence. All the warnings, encouragement, reality checks, and last-minute wisdom he can muster up. It's almost like the telling off one gets for stepping on the lawn of a grumpy elderly man. Okay, it's not, not that bad. Moses wasn't just venting, it was given for the purpose of attempting to save the nation he had all but founded, you know, from the sins that he knew were coming in the future once they were fat, happy, and wealthy and comfortable. He knew that they would forget the Lord because they had done so repeatedly, even with the tabernacle and the cloud of smoke, you know, or fire in the, in the midst for 40 years. And if that wasn't a deterrent, then what on earth would be? Moses didn't direct his sermon to a small group, but to an entire nation. Yeshua preached to large groups, even groups of thousands, but they had chosen to hear him, whereas Moses spoke to absolutely everyone from youngest to eldest. 
the content of their preaching was also very different. With Yeshua, we don't have any, thus saith the Lord. Yeah, he preached his sermons by his own authority. Thus saith me, okay? Moses spoke the oracles of God as a mediator and not as a source, as Yeshua did. Moses spoke mainly in terms of wisdom sayings, attempting to teach the people basic principles of right ruling within the ancient Near Eastern setting in which they lived. Moses's guidance was actually far from exhaustive and covered very little as far as the varieties of situations that people found themselves in or find themselves in now. Now, Yeshua, on the other hand, raised the bar exponentially, and yet he was talking to an audience who were not yet part of the new creation existence, and so his words must have seemed very, you know, pie in the sky, that's nice. Now, Paul, Peter, and James, and the others, when they wrote sermons, it was to an entirely different audience who did have the Torah increasingly written on their hearts. How we read their sermons changes based on whom they preach to, when, and why. Sermons aren't given in a vacuum. They come from a place of need and they have context. Moses spoke to a, you know, at one point mixed multitude who, over the course of 40 years in the wilderness, had probably become a lot more uniform and cohesive than they had been at first, as former outsiders had undoubtedly started intermarrying with the children of Israel. The prophets gave sermons on the necessity of repentance in the face of gross national idolatry, as they were warned of imminent exile from the land you know, if the people were failed to respond properly. Yeshua spoke to an oppressed population living in their own land, but under the rule of the last of a series of pagan empires. Unlike the well and miraculously fed audience of Moses, and the far too comfortable audience of the prophets, Yeshua preached to a downtrodden, defeated, impoverished, and hungry excuse for a people group who were mostly, really were trying to do their best. Paul, Peter, James, and the others preached to groups of Jews, Gentiles, or sometimes mixtures of the two. Sometimes the material was generic, you know, and suitable to be read to absolutely anyone anytime, anywhere, and at other times it was directed only towards certain groups or people who were going through certain things and who were in need of guidance. You know, obviously, advice to former pagans is going to look a lot different than advice to those who were born into observant Jewish families. And diaspora groups would have different concerns than Jerusalem-based congregations. Differences in audience can often illuminate the meaning of what was being written. For example, I say entirely different things when teaching adults than I would when teaching children. I mean, not always, but often. Knowing whether you're listening to character in context or context for kids will change the way you hear or read what I'm saying. The advice I give to kids and adults is very different because of differences in life experience and circumstances. Same exact things with the sermons and correspondences in the Bible. By correspondence, I mean letters, which is what epistle means. Now, the message of Romans concerning the weak and the strong changes radically 
depending on whether you assign strength and or weakness to the Roman Jews or the Roman Gentiles. It's important to know that the letter to the Galatians was written to Gentile converts and that Corinth was a Roman colony and not Greek and not especially Jewish. Although the message of the fruit of the Spirit and the works of the flesh work exactly the same way no matter who you are, what are we to do with instructions telling people not to keep honoring special days if we don't know the audience? And what sense do some of the instructions Moses gave in the wilderness even make outside of the culture of the ancient Near East or within a non-temple-centric society? Sermons tend to be far more applicable to generic or mixed audiences than the correspondence we find in epistles and you know, by correspondence, I mean the portions of the writings, and especially Paul's writings, which seem to come out of nowhere and counteract things he's ruled in other letters. I mean, it would seem from reading what he writes about women that one day he's all gung-ho about allowing women to lead without restrictions in the congregations, and then all of a sudden Ephesus that can't even ask questions. If we fail to recognize the parts of Paul's writings that are likely answers to specific questions he has been asked by specific congregations dealing with their own unique set of troubles, and we attempt to read the entire epistle as a generic face value sermon with universal application, we do get into all sorts of problems with consistency from one letter to another. But you know, that's what happens when we read someone else's mail. Here's an example that I've used a lot in the past to illustrate the problem. Dear Sam, well, it was great hearing from you again, and I can't wait until we can come visit. Seems like forever since we were in Liverpool and the chips we had at that place downtown were just the best. I was so shocked, though, to hear about Charlie in prison. But then, not really much of a surprise once I thought about it. He always was awkward around the kids, wasn't he? Maybe he can get things turned around for the better. Give me his address so I can send him a Bible, will you please? We're praying for him. As for Violet, I agree that she should not be teaching men like that. Let the men do it. It would be entirely inappropriate for Violet to be a part of anything like that. I know her heart's in the right place, but she would be better off with the women and children. Best regards, your brother Paul. Now, honestly, I want your first impressions. Question number one, what country is Sam from and what sort of food is Paul referring to? Question number two, what can you discern of Charlie's character and his past and present situation? Question number three, why doesn't Paul approve of Violet teaching men? The answer to all three should be, I have no idea, there's not enough information there. Now, it would be easier if we had the letter that this was a response to. Dear Paul, how are y'all doing in Chicago? Everyone here in Texas sure misses you. And Trudy, down at the deli, says she has a big bag of those Takis all put aside for you. She still laughs about how much you love them, like you'd never seen a Mexican chip before. You are not going to believe this, but remember Charlie, the youth group leader? Well, come to find out he hated it, and he was only in it to please his parents. So, Greg got him started in prison ministry, and he loves it. He has started a Bible drive and everything. I think he's going to make a big difference there. 
Here's the issue, though, and I want your honest opinion. His sister, Violet, well, you know what a heart of gold she has, and I never met anyone so trusting. Well, she wants to go in there teaching right alongside him. Well, I'm against it because she is always falling for some sob story and getting herself in deep trouble. Now, if it were Pat, her mom, that would be one thing. That sister is tough as nails. But I think Violet is absolutely the worst possible candidate for men's prison ministry. And this isn't a white-collar facility. These are violent felons. She's been offered a chance to teach at the local women's shelter, which I think she would be great at with her compassion. But for some reason, she is always wanting to save guys who end up walking all over her. I know she takes your advice really seriously, so can you please put in a good word? Thanks, Sam. Now be honest. You probably thought or at least strongly suspected that Sam was from Britain and that they were talking about what we would call French fries and they call chips over there and that Charlie was in jail for child molestation, that the Bible was for his salvation and that Paul was saying women shouldn't teach men at all, but should instead stick to teaching women and children. Well, that's because my fictitious Paul had no obligation to write detailed accounts of what questions he was answering. After all, he was writing to the person who asked the questions in the first place. You filled in the blanks logically with details from your sphere of reference, just like we all are naturally inclined to do. And yes, there actually is a Liverpool in Texas. If that response letter had been taught in church by itself, what sort of doctrine could be built around it? And just think of poor Charlie's reputation. Anyway, we have to be very careful with the epistles because they were sometimes sermons and were at other times personal letters, and generally they could be both at the same time. No one alive today was part of the original audience, and as John Walton always says, the Bible was written for our benefit, but it wasn't specifically written with ourselves, our culture, or our modern rules of communication in mind. Nor should it have been as it would have died out as a needlessly ineffective and confusing book that wouldn't have made sense to anyone until after the Enlightenment, you know, which was a few hundred years ago. The beauty of the Bible is that it said what it needed to say to the original audience, and that is why it survived and not only that, but why it has changed the world since then. One more thing I want to talk about, and this is a bit controversial, but it's also gaining more and more scholarly acceptance in both Jewish and Christian circles. Namely, what do we make of the Torah? I'm not talking about the narratives, of course, you know, the stories, but the sections that most would call legal. For a law code, if we're going to be honest, the Torah is utterly inadequate because it just doesn't cover a lot of situations and there really isn't a lot of clear guidance in it for specific problems or crimes. This is why the Talmud was written in recognition of this fact. The Talmud is made up of two parts, produced at different points of time, both after Yeshua's ministry. The Mishnah was compiled by 200 of the Common Era, and it contains the legal rulings of the Sanhedrin, which is like the Supreme Court of Israel. It's reflective of case law, which is the law of the land based on former rulings. It's a, this is how we do it based on such and such a case like 
Brown versus the Board of Education, which set the standard that considers state-sponsored segregation to be a direct violation of the 14th Amendment, which guarantees all citizens equal protections under the law. But if we wanted to read what the different justices had to say and how they came to their conclusion and what arguments are and are not considered to be authoritative, then we would look at the transcripts of the deliberations. And that's a good way to look at the second half of the Talmud, the Gemara, which was compiled by 600 of the Common Era. Now, this is why you find some messed up stuff in the Gemara, which never saw the light of day as far as practice goes. Stuff like the one rabbi who was shot down, he should have maybe just been shot, for saying that it's only sex between adult males that's forbidden by Leviticus 18.22 and that pedophilia is okay. No one agreed with him, but it's included in there as shot down just in case someone else tries to make that argument. And again, they say, no, this has already been discussed. We are not having this conversation and you need to get help. Now, when the Greeks took over Galilee, Samaria and Judea, they brought some good things with them along with some bad things. The rabbi-disciple relationship, for example, comes straight out of the philosopher-disciple phenomenon of ancient Greece. The way they used the law codes, instead of wisdom literature to guide judges, which is supposed to ensure fairer rulings than when things are simply left up to individual judges, as well as our own, you know, our own law codes are like that. They come from the Greek system. And so do the rulings that we see in the Talmud. The Talmud is a Hellenistic document, not a Hebraic document. Once a society becomes large enough and complicated enough, wisdom codes tend to become very problematic. And that's what the instructions of the Torah represent, wisdom codes. So when we hear about the law codes of Hammurabi, Lipid Ishtar, the Hittites, and the surrounding ancient Near Eastern nations, they generally relied on wisdom sayings instead of law codes. Rulers would write of the decisions made during their reign that reflected the righteousness and justice that they wanted to be remembered for and were really not always hard and fast rules. I mean, even Yahweh breaks his guidelines on a regular basis because wisdom is situational and it cannot be legislated. Is all stick collecting prohibited on the Sabbath? No. Wisdom understands that people have different reasons and different motivations. Doing it because you're trying to get ahead on the week's work is entirely different from having a child suddenly take mortally ill and needing to have a fire blazing to keep the child alive. Heck, everyone would be gathering sticks in that situation. I mean, I sure would. Firstborn laws are routinely disregarded by God, who chooses whom he wants, when he wants, and why he wants. Boaz was able to marry Ruth because the ban on intermarriage with Moabites was a wisdom ruling and not a legal ruling. And David was only able to become king for that same reason. Wisdom rulings are about principles. In principle, you know, the Israelites shouldn't have intermarried with the Moabites. But in practice, sometimes it is the right thing to do. Speeding laws, on the other hand, do not recognize circumstances when it is okay to go 80 miles per hour in a school zone. And we're all okay with that, right? The sexual prohibitions of Leviticus 18, a legally binding and complete list of sex crimes one shouldn't commit? No, 
And many cults have exploited the lack of mention of children so as to say that sex with a child isn't forbidden. A law code would have been amended to deal with that loophole, but a wisdom code tells us that sex outside of heterosexual marriage is forbidden, and all the examples are just driving that concept home. No one should have ever gone looking for exceptions. How about the presence of polygyny, which is the taking of multiple wives? It's acknowledged as a reality in that world and controlled, but never legislated as good or even okay. The wisdom of Torah as a whole shows polygyny to be a hot mess and not an ideal. But if we're misusing Torah as some sort of law code, we're free to do whatever isn't expressly prohibited as long as we can argue that it wouldn't bother us if it happened to us. Which is nothing but a hypothetical argument of convenience. Wisdom demands more of us. And so the wisdom codes of Torah were written down for the benefit of those who had proven themselves worthy and capable of judging their neighbors. The wisdom codes of the Torah didn't lock the judges in, usually, but gave them principles from which to derive situational wisdom. And that's what we see with Solomon. Solomon asked for wisdom and not for a comprehensive understanding of all the do's and don'ts he's going to run into over his life. Law codes don't allow a lot of wisdom. Juries aren't supposed to allow themselves to be compromised by extenuating circumstances. The way we view laws in the modern world, therefore, doesn't represent the world of Torah at all, but a more Hellenistic approach. Now, a fantastic book on this is John Walton's The Lost World of Torah. A community can run according to wisdom rulings as long as the judges are impartial and honest and merciful to all parties involved. But a nation can't. That's why we had some states absolutely outlawing slavery from the start, like Vermont, and other states created for the express purpose of being slave states. Missouri. It's why hate crimes had to be made federal crimes so that local law enforcement could no longer prosecute or legally ignore lynchings according to their own sensibilities. The Emmett Till lynching is a good example of why that sort of law was needed and long overdue because without it, a community can make the decision that murder's okay as long as everyone approves, but that whistling at a white woman is grounds for state-sanctioned mob violence and murder. This is why the two greatest commandments aren't do not murder and do not whatever, and instead are the commands to love God and neighbor. Because when we're honest, wisdom doesn't allow us to harm a neighbor and therefore pretty much covers everything and anything oppressive and cruel and unfair. It's only when we decide to treat the Torah like a modern comprehensive law code that we look to it to see how much we can and cannot legally get away with in violating law of the love of others. But in the first century, as we see from the teaching of Yeshua, that's exactly what they were doing. The Hillel Pharisees were endorsing divorce your wife for any cause, while the Shammaite Pharisees were sticking to the wisdom of the code and saying, dudes, it's obvious that it's only allowed for major transgressions. The Pharisees were also marrying their nieces because there was no specific prohibition, which is super gross. And the Qumran community was outraged over it. 
When we read the Sermon on the Mount, coming full circle here, Yeshua was directly contradicting an interpretation of the Torah that is focused around using it to see what you can and cannot get away with doing. He took the wisdom of Torah to a whole other level that, frankly, the original audience at Sinai couldn't have dealt with. I mean, they had enough problems with the very few instructions that they were given in the first place. You know, they had problems with the Ten Commandments, all of them. Yeshua commanded that we be guided by wisdom, love of neighbor, and love of God. And so his sermons weren't simply commentary on the Torah. They were a restoration of Torah to the category of wisdom literature, where to do certain things allowed, allowed quotations, by Torah loopholes becomes unthinkable. Why would any man who loves his wife give her a rival and her children rivals and divide family resources, specifically his time and affections. When wisdom is applied in love, it becomes a non-option. Why would someone sin against their neighbor and then go apologize to God about it and think that's enough? Why would a person governed by love and self-sacrifice consider it okay to look at other people as sexual objects, and especially when we know how many men and women involved in the porn industry are trafficked and abused? Who would come up with a complicated set of rules for when it's okay to break an oath based on how clever you are and how you say it? And where is the wisdom or shalom, which is peace and wholeness, in a world where revenge is the norm and hatred of enemies is the norm and there's no forgiveness? Jesus is the fulfillment of Torah not because he struck it down, but because he brought it back to its beginnings as wisdom and living by wisdom is a lot harder than living by a law code. Living by wisdom is more restrictive and requires mature character. This is why we actually prefer law codes and have tried to force Torah into that sort of very Greek box.